How can you be so certain? Uh, That was the question a grieving mother had asked of a Christian minister. Uh, It was during a dialogue dinner uh, when a group of Christian and non-Christian people had gathered together to have a robust discussion about God and about life. Uh, In the course of the conversation, um, they began to discuss whether God was really in control. Uh, The Christian minister affirmed wholeheartedly that God was in control no matter what circumstance came our way. However, one of the women who was there had just recently lost her son in a terrible accident. She challenged the minister, how can you say, how can you be certain that God is in control when terrible things like this keep happening? Uh, Perhaps you've asked yourself that same question. Uh, When you look out into the world, it just doesn't seem like God is in control. Uh, We have grief, we have sadness, we have sickness, we have sin. Uh, While church attendance and Christianity in general seem to be dying in the Western world, while uh, Christians continue to face severe persecution and suffering in the Eastern world, and while false teaching seems to uh, be splitting the church apart across the whole world, How can we be certain that God really is in control? Uh, That may be the question that many of you are asking, uh, but I think it's also the question that the people of Israel were struggling with when they were in exile. Uh, If if you know your history, the people had lost everything. Uh, They lost their king, their temple, their priests, everything that set them apart as a nation. They were essentially nothing. They were left wondering whether God would ever keep his promises. Uh, Psalm 110 is God's response to his people that they can be certain that he is in control. Uh, Psalm 110 comes in the last book of the Psalms. If you remember, the Psalms are split into five books. Uh, The first of us in Psalm 2, the first book in Psalm 2, showed us what the king is like. And now uh, this psalm is uh, almost a mirror image of Psalm 2, comes in the last book uh, to remind us and show us of God's Messiah. And the reason is because we can be certain that God is in control when we look to God's Messiah. Uh, I think Psalm 110 presents to the reader three different things about the Messiah that give God's people certainty. Uh, These three things have actually become uh, the three main points for uh, for this morning's sermon. And so it's number one, we can be certain because God's king will rule over his enemies. Number two, we can be certain because God's priest will be eternal. And number three, we can be certain because God's judge will bring true justice. So there it's God's Messiah will be the king, he'll be the priest, and he'll be the judge. And so if you're following along in your outlines, uh, inside the the bulletin, there's an outline of the talk. Uh, We're at point two, uh, the king. Uh, Let me read, let me pick up Psalm 110 from verse one. Verse one. A Psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. 
Well, as the psalm begins, we're told that it is written by King David. Uh, And David begins by introducing the reader to two different lords. Uh, If you take a look at verse 1, you can see we have one Lord written in all capital letters. Uh, We see that that's referring to the personal or the covenant name of God. Uh, It's Yahweh. It's referring to God himself. Uh, And the second Lord, if you take a look in verse 1, only has the letter L capitalized. Uh, That's referring to the Messiah, to God's chosen king. Uh, Notice that David calls him my Lord. Uh, He is David's king and David's master. I think this might be the first time explicitly in the Psalms that we see that David himself knew that he was not the Messiah. Uh, That David was expecting someone greater, someone to come. Uh, God's king was not just going to be another human king from uh, the royal family line of David. Uh, He would be David's lord. Uh, He would be superior to all the other kings that have come before Uh, Then David records for us in verse 1 a divine oracle. It is God speaking. And so we see that Yahweh speaks directly to the Messiah and Yahweh by his word sets his king in his rightful place. Uh, You see, God's king is not like human rulers. Uh, He doesn't come into his power by his own efforts. Uh, He doesn't become king through military conquests like kingdoms of old. Uh, He doesn't become a leader through a democratic process like leaders today. Uh, No, God's king comes into power because God himself has put him in power. Uh, What we're reading here is God-ordained and God-purposed leadership. And it means that there is nothing and no one that can stand against this divinely appointed king. Uh, See also that the king is seated at the right hand of God. I think this is a way of talking about God establishing this king in absolute power and authority. I think you can start to see a bit of the picture that the psalm gives of this king. He is a king who has overwhelming sovereignty. He is in control and he rules perfectly and no one can stand against him. I think you see this even more clearly as you see how the king relates to his enemies. If you take a look in verse 1, in verse 1 we see that the enemies of the king will be a footstool for him. Uh, now I think this isn't just a picture of a footrest that we might use at home. Um, it's actually a picture of how ancient kings used to overcome their enemies. Uh, the footstool language envisages a king who has his foot firmly fitted on the neck of his enemies. Uh, It's a picture of total subjugation and humiliation. God's enemies cannot stand against this king. Uh, You see it again in verse 2. If you take a look at verse 2, Yahweh extends the rule of his king. His rule will not just be in Zion, not just in Jerusalem, but it will be in the midst of his enemies. Uh, It's a picture of God's enemies being forced to obey this king. They can do nothing to oppose him. God's king will rule and there's nothing that anyone can do about it. So David shows us a little of what it looks like for the enemies of God. This is how the king will relate to his enemies. Uh, But what about his own people? How will the king relate to his own people? Uh, Well, I think verse 3, if we take a look at verse 3, gives us the answer. 
When this king rules in the day of his power, the people of God will freely and willingly give themselves in service to this king. I think sometimes we have a bit of a romanticised view of uh, ancient history. Uh, we think in the ancient world that when uh, the armies of a king went out into battle, they did so you know, bravely, valiantly, uh, they chose to do that. Uh, but more often history shows us that they would actually be forced or coerced to go into battle. Uh, no army would ever go out freely. Uh, no one would willingly give their lives to serve uh, a king, no matter how good he was. Uh, But here, David shows us that when God's king comes into power, God's people will willingly offer themselves up to him. Uh, I think the overall picture of verse 3 seems to be uh, the glorious king leading uh, an army of people who are fully dedicated to him. Uh, It's a breathtaking picture of how God's king will rule over the world. He will rule over his enemies And God's people will be victorious with this king. And so, friends, I'm hoping you can start to see how this vivid imagery would actually be bringing great comfort to God's people. The psalmist brings certainty to the people of Israel living under exile by pointing them to the king who will rule over his enemies. Their present circumstances does not negate the fact that God has preordained the events of history. God will be victorious and God's king will defeat his enemies. Uh, Friends, I think this means that we too can take heart. Uh, The New Testament reading that uh, Mark read for us earlier showed us that Jesus is the king that this psalm is talking about. Uh, Jesus is the one who is David's Lord. Jesus is the one who by his death and resurrection and ascension, is seated at the right hand of God. And he is the one whom the people of God freely and willingly serve. Uh, I think you see a little bit of what it looks like to freely and willingly serve the king when you look at the life of the apostles. Uh, In the book of Acts, you see that uh, these apostles who in the Gospels were weak and timid and uh, quite often fearful in the book of Acts, are willing to die for their king. They are willing to die in proclaiming the gospel, and some of them even get executed. It's interesting that today we see the same thing. Uh, Believers all over the world willingly give their lives in service of this king. And so, friends, uh, maybe the question for us to be asking is, what are we freely serving? I think in the end, all of us serve something. Uh, There is something in our lives that we give everything up for. Um, Is that Jesus? You know, I I think quite often that we're more preoccupied with serving ourselves than serving King Jesus. Uh, I wonder if our lives have become more about uh, working in order to make a name for ourselves. Uh, We seek prestige and success Uh, We seek glory. I wonder if our lives have become self-service in order to kind of achieve the kind of lifestyle that we want uh, and for our families. Uh, Have our lives become about serving ourselves um, that we might even use the good gifts that God gives us, the money that God gives us, uh, but we use it for ourselves rather than, say, for God's church. 
I think if this is us, if this is the case for us, uh, then, we re- then we need to realise that according to this psalm, we have set ourselves against God's king. Uh, it's interesting in the psalm that there are only two kinds of people. Uh, did, you, did you see that? In verses 1 to 3, uh, there are those that are the enemies of the king and there are those that freely serve him. Uh, there is no third option there. You either serve the king or you are his enemy. And so perhaps for some of us, we need to ask the question, uh, have we come to submit to God's king? Do we know him as our king and as our ruler? And if we can genuinely and honestly answer yes, then we need to ask, how can we single-mindedly live to serve God's king? Uh, Well, the psalmist uh, has just assured his readers by pointing them to the reign of God's king. Um, But I I wonder if if you've thought that he's kind of left them with a bit of a problem. Uh, Yes, the reign of God's king would deal with the problem of uh, the enemies of Israel. Uh, They would no longer be under tyrannical powers. Uh, But it actually doesn't deal with Israel's greatest problem. Uh, For those who know Israel's history... The exile didn't happen simply because Babylon was stronger and smarter than them. Uh, Israel was in exile because of their sin. Uh, Israel had rebelled and rejected their God. Uh, They had in fact become the enemies of God. And so God in his anger used the Babylonians to punish his own people. And so if the real problem of Israel is their sin and God's wrath... How can Israel have certainty for the future? How can they know that they won't just mess it up all again? Um, I think the psalmist answers that question for us by once again turning our eyes uh, to see the identity of the Messiah. Uh, He shows us that we can be certain because God's priest will be eternal. And so if you're following the outline, we're in point three, uh, the priest. Uh, Let's pick it up again. Psalm 110, verse 4. Verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Uh, The psalmist now includes this quite remarkable verse. Uh, The line seems a bit strange. It doesn't actually fit into uh, the, the rest of the psalm quite neatly. Everything else seems to be about the king Yet somehow in the middle we have this line about a priest. But as we've just thought about, if Israel's biggest problem was sin, then as much as they needed a king, they needed a priest. And so the king, as the priest of God, would deal with the problem of sin. In verse 4 you can see that God himself swears and will not change his mind. Uh, It's interesting in the Bible that actually God doesn't need to swear. He doesn't need to make an oath. Uh, God's word is true. God never lies. And so um, it's almost redundant for him to make an oath. But he does it here for the benefit of his people. Uh, God makes a divine oath, a divine promise that can never be broken. If, If God's normal word is true, well, how much more than this oath that he makes and says will never be broken? And then the content of that oath you find in verse 4. 
God promises that his king will be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Uh, Now, the Old Testament law said that the priests were to be from the tribe of Levi. Uh, uh, Of uh, Jacob's 12 sons, Levi, the Levites, were to be the priests. And it was only that particular family um, that could serve as priests in the temple of God. Uh, Likewise, in Israel, the king could only be from the tribe of Judah. Uh, It had to be from David's family line. And so you can kind of see that there's no normal way There's no normal way for a king to be a priest or a priest to be a king. Uh, These roles were mutually exclusive uh, according to God's word. Uh, But here we see that the king won't be a priest from the tribe of Levi. Uh, He will be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Uh, Now Melchizedek is one of those kind of mysterious figures in the Bible. We don't know a whole lot about him. Uh, He's only mentioned twice in the entire Old Testament. The first reference is here in this psalm, in Psalm 110. Uh, The only other one in the Old Testament is in Genesis 14. Uh, In Genesis 14, we see Melchizedek is this strange figure who comes and blesses Abraham after a mighty battle. Melchizedek is described as both a king and a priest of God. Uh, And that's really all we know. We don't know anything about Melchizedek before Genesis 14. We have no origin story about where he came from. And we don't know anything about what happened to him after. Uh, I think uh, the biblical authors use the the mystery and the relative silence around Melchizedek uh, to make him into an apt symbol of God's king. You see, like Melchizedek, God's king will be a priest who has no beginning and no end. Uh, He'll be greater than both Abraham and the Levitical priests. Uh, He was the one who blessed Abraham, and so he was greater than Abraham. This priest will serve God perfectly. And so you see, God's king will not be a typical priest. Uh, He will not have to offer sacrifice after sacrifice until he eventually dies and then has to be replaced. Uh, Instead, God's king will be a priest who will serve forever. Take a look at verse 4. The priest who will serve forever. Uh, He will be the priest that offers a once-for-all sacrifice that pays the penalty for sin. Uh, He will be the priest that eternally intercedes in the presence of God on behalf of his people. Uh, He will be the priest that brings an end to the wrath of God. Uh, Israel's problem was their sin and God's wrath. And this priest would come to deal with both problems and to bring peace between God and between man. And so, friends, you can start to see how this description of the priestly king would bring comfort to God's people. Uh, The the psalmist brings certainty uh, to the people that not even their sin will separate them from God. Uh, By showing us the eternal priest, the psalmist shows his readers that nothing can separate God's people from God anymore. God will be with his people and God's priest will put an end to everything that separates us from God. Uh, And so friends, this means that we too can take heart and be assured. Uh, The book of Hebrews picks up uh, this figure of Melchizedek and uses it to describe the role of Jesus. You see, Jesus is the priestly king that Psalm 110 describes. Uh, Jesus is the one who makes that once for all sacrifice for sins 
He's not a Levitical priest that needs to keep making more and more sacrifices. He does it once and for all by his death on the cross. He is the one who now intercedes for us in the very presence of God. He is the one who has turned aside the wrath of God and has brought peace between God and between man. Jesus is the one who brings true certainty by his death and his resurrection. And so, friends, uh, if you're here today and you believe that there is some sin in your life, uh, that there's some transgression that you've committed, some rebellion that you've done that you think is beyond forgiveness, friends, I want you to know that God's priestly king brings lasting and true forgiveness. Uh, Jesus' death means that there is no sin that is beyond the cross. Uh, By coming to God, And asking for forgiveness, there is uh, forgiveness for all sin. Uh, Know that you can come to God and find reconciliation. Uh, It's not not because of your good works, but because of what Jesus has done to bring you to God. Uh, As Romans 8 says, there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. So I think... One of the implications of this psalm is that we can uh, take heart and rest assured in this great priestly king. Well, uh, so far, friends, the psalmist has uh, brought certainty to his readers uh, by pointing them to the reign of God's king. Uh, He's given assurance to his readers by showing them uh, that the king will serve as an eternal priest. He will deal with the problem of sin and God's wrath. And now the psalmist ends by once again turning our eyes to uh, yet another identity of God's Messiah. And so he shows us that we can be certain because God's judge will bring true justice to the world. And so uh, if you're following along again, point four in our outlines, the judge. Uh, Let me pick it up again in verse five, verses five to seven. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Uh, The psalmist ends the psalm with a vivid picture of the day of God's wrath. It's a day of judgment and a day of battle. Uh, Back in verse 1, we saw that Yahweh uh, called his king to come and sit at his right hand. Uh, Now we see what it looks like when the king sits at the right hand of God. Verses 5 to 7 is the picture of what happens when God's king sits upon his throne. And the result is overwhelming. Uh, We see that the priestly king of Psalm 110 will act as judge in bringing justice to the world. He will bring divine judgment upon all of the wicked. He will bring the judgment of God. Uh, the psalmist uses remarkably vivid imagery. Uh, it's, it's really scary language to describe the judgment that God's king will bring. Uh, he describes the shattering of kings in verse 5 and uh, the shattering of chiefs in verse 6. Uh, when the king brings judgment, it's described as filling them with corpses in verse 6 as well. It's a truly terrifying picture of destruction. The whole world filled with uh, the dead bodies of God's enemies. 
Uh, You see, God will not let his enemies remain forever. Uh, God will judge, God's king will judge the wicked and bring about true justice. Uh, If you take a look, you can see that the scope of the judgment is universal as well. Uh, It's not just over some part of the world, it's over the entire world. Uh, The judgment is among the nations in verse 6, as well as over the rulers of the face of the earth, the end of verse 6. And after he finishes, the king and his people will dwell in security in verse 7. Uh, Friends, as we read uh, these verses, I think uh, we see the judgment and justice of God. There's both a wonderful thing about it, but there's also a terrifying thing about it. I think the good news for Israel, as they would hear these verses, uh, is that the enemies of God, the nations that have continually conquered them and destroyed them and brought so much pain, uh, that they would receive judgment from God. Uh, No longer would there be exploitation or corruption, uh, no more degradation or any kind of evil. Uh, All of the evil in the world would be destroyed. Uh, Israel knew, and I think, uh, I hope we know as well, that there can be nothing more wonderful in the world than the end of evil, uh, the end of sickness and death, the end of uh, corruption and all kinds of um, abuse of power. Uh, This is uh, a return to justice. This is a return to the world as it should be. Uh, But the picture is also terrifying because it shows that all evil, all of God's enemies will be destroyed. You see, all those who have aligned themselves against God, all those who have ignored God, who've rebelled against God, who have set themselves as their own rulers rather than submitting to God, everyone will face this terrifying judgment. God will not let any guilty party go free. It's only those who submit to the king who will survive. Uh, And so, friends, as you uh, see this picture of quite terrifying judgment, um, how do you respond to it? How do you feel about the fact that the Lord Jesus will judge the world in this way? Are you uh, horrified by the very notion of it? Do you find it hard to imagine that God could do such a thing? Or perhaps do you realize that this terrible reality is what happens when people reject the good ruler of the universe. You see, this is what it looks like when the world is set right again, uh, when evil is done away with, when all oppressive powers are gone. This is what it looks like when Christ rules with power with his people. And so I think as tough as it is to read this part of the Bible, I think there are two responses that we need to make to this judgment. There are two things that we need to do. Uh, The first, I think, is that we need to throw ourselves at the feet of this king. Uh, In Psalm 2, we're reminded that actually uh, uh, rescue from this judgment is only found in the king. We find refuge in him. Uh, He is the only way of salvation. He is the one who will bring people out of judgment and to eternal life. And so we need to turn to him with ever more desperation and find assurance in this king. It's the people of God, those who willingly give their lives to him, who will uh, survive on the day of judgment. So firstly, we need to throw ourselves at the feet of the king. And secondly, I think uh, the reality of this judgment means we need to be warning others of this coming judgment. 
Uh, If this is true, if Psalm 110 shows us what the end will be like, then we need to be pleading with people to turn to Christ. Uh, The book of Revelation describes uh, the judgment of Christ coming uh, on the last day as similar to this. It's the exact same language. Uh, God, in his kindness, has not brought this day yet. God delays because he does not want to see people go through this judgment He delays so that we might plead with people that they would turn to Jesus and find salvation. And so it means we need to be praying to God that he would change the hearts of our friends and neighbours. We need to preach the gospel at every opportunity because that's the only way that people are saved. That's the only salvation that people will find. The only way to survive the judgment is to, to take refuge in the King. Uh, Well, friends, as I draw to a close, uh, let's go back to the question I was asking at the beginning of the talk. How can we be certain that God is in control? I think Psalm 110 has given us the answer that the way to be certain is by setting our eyes upon the king. It's by lifting our head and seeing the king upon his throne. You see, we've, we've looked at Psalm 110 and we've seen that God's Messiah is the one who will rule over his enemies. God's Messiah is the priest who will intercede for his people forever. And God's Messiah is the judge who will bring true justice to the world. Friends, it's only as we see the Lord Jesus Christ in all his glory seated at the right hand of God um, that we can have true certainty. Um, As bad as our circumstances may get, when we cast our eyes upon Jesus and know for certain that he rules supreme well, then we can have assurance. We can take rest in this king. And so as we face trials of various kinds, friends, we can take heart. It is not at all easy to live as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. We face persecution, we face grief, we face loss. But as we look to Jesus sitting at the right hand of God, we can have comfort. We can know that he rules and that there is nothing that can happen in our lives that can remove Jesus off the throne. His throne is eternal and he will rule forever. And in his kindness, very soon, he is bringing all things to their God-appointed end. So friends, let's take heart and rest assured in God's king. Why don't I pray now that God would help us to rest assured in his king. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the God who is sovereign, who controls and who uses all things for your purposes. Uh, We thank you that Jesus now reigns at your right hand, uh, that by his death and resurrection and ascension, he has come into this position of glory and power. Uh, We thank you that by your mercy he intercedes for us, uh, that we can be certain that our sins are forgiven because he has paid the price for it. And thank you, Father, that uh, even the promise of judgment, uh, the promise of justice, uh, brings great comfort to us. As we see injustice in the world, we know that it will not last forever, but a day is coming when you will set all things right. Father, we pray uh, that you would give us uh, confidence in you, 
Give us certainty in the midst of a life filled with so much doubt. Uh, Give us assurance uh, in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And Father, please uh, motivate us, uh, fill our hearts with love uh, for the people of the world that we might uh, plead with them to turn to you in faith and repentance. And Father, all these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.